All right, pleasure to see you all this morning. I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving time spent with family. I know illness has hit folks hard physically, and we have a few out. I was mentioned this morning uh, in, in our time of prayer, so please continue to be in prayer for those who are just experiencing illness right now and that the God would, would heal them and um, bring them back to us soon. Turn in your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 2. I'm going to ask Jeremy what I forgot this morning. Yeah, okay. You got it. <laughs> the prize goes to him. I think they talked at, at men's Bible study about getting me a, a boat anchor or something and attaching glasses. <laughs> what strength are these? 30 30. 30 30, all right, yeah. Okay, wait. Things are a little fuzzy here. I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's the... That's a good thing about a computer. You can take that zoom function and you can, you can blow it up. So uh, bear with me here as uh, I might be struggling through my notes a little bit this morning. Hopefully you've made your way to 1 John chapter 2. I want to thank the worship team for just, uh, bringing those songs to us this morning, this being our prayers and our worship unto God. And Stephen is still involved in coordinating and in planning the music that is brought to us, even though he's not here. Uh, He'll send out a text message early to the group. Uh, He'll share with them the scripture, and they will be thinking about it, and they'll be sharing songs with each other. So there's a lot of cooperation and coordination that goes on in bringing these songs to you every morning. So every Sunday morning, I want to thank them for their intentionality in that. All right, so hopefully if you've made your way, way there to the scriptures The book of 1 John, beginning in chapter 2 and verses 1 through 6 is going to be our time of study this morning. John writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him, If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So we read the word of the Lord and now let's turn to the Lord of the word once more in prayer and asking for his Holy Spirit to instruct us during this time. God, we thank you for the gift of your word to us, that it is truth. I pray that we anchor ourselves to it this morning. God, there will be a lot of my words interspersed in scripture, and please guard my heart, please guard my lips to not say things that would lead someone in error. I would not want to be guilty of any false doctrine Lord, we just want to trust in the essence of your truth to guide us and also trust in your Holy Spirit who abides in all of your children to help us in our understanding of your word. And we thank you that you give us this gift of prayer that we can come and we can petition you. And it's not just based on our own righteousness, but it is through the perfected work of Jesus Christ that he is our advocate. He is the one who is interceding on our behalf. And so we ask that you would just bless our time together and that you be glorified in it, that you would intercede and that you would uh, do that work within us to grow us more in the knowledge of you and just help us Father, to have our hearts readied and open to understand your truths 
and when the world around us just seems so chaotic and would be full of lies, we ask that we not be deceived by those things, but we just continue to stand firm upon our faith in you and in your word. And we know that, God, your faithfulness goes beyond uh, any faithfulness that we could try to produce on our own, but you are always faithful. You always come through with your promises, Lord. I thank you for saving us, and God, we just pray that you would guide us again through your word in Jesus' name, amen. And I'll say, let's go uh, look at this passage together as we dive a little bit deeper into it. We see at the beginning that John is addressing them as his little children. And this is an endearing term that I believe John uses to describe his affection for those that he is writing to. When he says, my little children, understand that John also recognizes that he too, in the broader sense, is a child himself. He would be referred to as a child of God, as we all are. All who have professed faith in Jesus Christ, who have come to a relationship with him through faith, are made children of God by Jesus Christ's perfected work on the cross. We see John writing of this in his gospel in the first chapter of John, verses 12 through 13, he would write, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So in that sense, spiritually, we become children of God. We are made children of God by Christ's redeeming sacrifice. Now remember that John is writing this in his old age and had himself probably pastored many of those to whom he is writing this letter to. Um, in a sense, he's pastoring us with this letter. And so referring to them as little children is to address them as a body of believers that he holds very dear. And to address them also as little children has with it this idea that care needs to be taken about their well-being. Right? He is writing as a concerned parent. A loving, caring parent will want to protect their children from everything that we perceive as danger. Isn't that right for all of you parents? Right? We try to protect our kids from any harm that might come to them physically. But here, John is writing to his little children and desiring to protect them morally from sin. It is a spiritual protection that he is desiring for them. Now, it is important that we want to pray for physical protection, but more importantly, John is concerned about moral protection here. We like to think that we are living in a world where maybe we don't like to think this, but we perceive that we are living probably in the worst of times, that sin is running rampant and it is just out of control and it just seems to be getting worse. But remember that John is also writing in a time where Christians are being severely persecuted to the point that they are being martyred for their faith. It, it is even said by historians, this isn't scripture, that John himself was boiled in oil in an attempt to kill him for professing Christ as a savior. I mean, this is a time where Christians are being fed to the lions, and so they are undergoing severe persecution such that none of us have really experienced that type of persecution. Also, because Gnosticism, this false doctrine that we have talked about before was also running rampant that it is giving people an excuse to just sin all the more. If we're not responsible for what we do in our flesh, then why shouldn't we just go on sinning if we're going to get saved anyway? That's kind of what Gnosticism professed. So understand that John is writing to these people um, who are deceived by this false doctrine and are just going out sinning willingly and not thinking that there's any repercussions to that. So it's not that he's writing 
in a time that's any different from ours, if anything, it might be even morally worse than what we are seeing around us today. Now, we, we are seeing a decay of society going on around us, but know that John is writing in just as sinful of a time as we are living in today. So, of jo- most concern to John is to protect his little children from sin. And that's what he writes to us. In Proverbs, the wisdom of Solomon tells us that we are to train up a child in the way that they should go so that when they're old, they will not depart from us. So you can see that John, in a sense, is doing that for us here when he says, my little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. That you may not sin. Last week with Ray's message, we saw how seriously we should take sin when we do sin that we come to God in agreement about our sin. He knows it all. We can't hide it in our heart, even if as much as we try to hide it from others and try to tuck it away and keep it hidden, God knows the human heart. He sees our condition. We're like an open book before him. He wants us to confess it before him. He'll confront us with our sin, and we need to agree, yes, God, I understand that is sin. Your word tells me that is sin. I need to confess it before you. And also what we saw there is that the, the damaging Uh, thing of sin is that it separates us from God. It breaks communion and fellowship with others. It ruins relationships. We can see signs of sin in one's life uh, outwardly, and we can certainly experience them spiritually as well. Why would we not want to take our sin seriously? That's why John is coming really at this very hard, and he wants and desires that we as little children, those who he's teaching and ministering to, that we are protected from sin, that we may not sin. But then there is a but statement here. He says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's the second half of verse one. And it recognizes that perfection cannot be attained by any of us. But it doesn't mean that we go on sinning, that we go on practicing sin, is how John will describe it, that we live a lifestyle that is consistent with a sinful life. And last week also, Ray taught on verse 8 of chapter 1, and we see where John recognizes here that there will be times where we as believers will stumble. He says in verse 1, or verse 8 of chapter 1, if we say we have no sin, well, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We do have all the resources that we need for victory in Jesus Christ, a victory to overcome sin. We keep, as believers, we keep persevering to overcome that sin in our life. We take strides in putting that sin to death and no longer walking in it. But there are going to be times where we sin, and this is what John seems to be addressing here. For him to say that we're little children, children of God, this is for believers who stumble in sin. You're a child of God because your sins have been forgiven. But what happens when I do sin? What happens when we do sin? We go to Jesus, is what John is telling us. Go to Jesus. Why do we go to Jesus? Because he is the advocate that we have with the Father. He is Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is our advocate. So let's look a little bit at what this means for us. What happens when we do sin? We go to Jesus just as we come to him in faith for our salvation, right? That we, our sins are forgiven in salvation, but we come to him also for that continual confession of sin. Because when we do sin, 
which we will as believers, we need an advocate with the Father, and that what Jesus has become for us in salvation. He is the one who has bought the right to go before the Father on our behalf. We couldn't on our own. We couldn't come to the Father, but Jesus is our advocate. And this Greek word for advocate is parakletos, parakletos, and it's to be called to one's aid. And the definition is an advocate. You might hear it also interpreted as an intercessor, a consoler, comforter, helper, helper. And it's two words put together in Greek. There's parakletos, and para means with or someone who is close beside. When Jesus says that in John 14, he will send his Holy Spirit, the helper, to be with us, it is someone who comes along who is close beside us, and then he also says the Holy Spirit will be in you. But that, that word para, to be close beside, is combined with kaleo, which means to make a call, to come close beside and to make a call. And so properly, it's a legal advocate who makes the right judgment call because he is close enough to the situation. Because Jesus being God, he understands everything about us. He too knows our heart. And in New Testament times, this word parakletos was the word that you would use to say someone is an attorney or someone is a lawyer, someone giving evidence that stands up in court. But it's used exclusively by John. It is used four times in the Gospel of John and it's used once here in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 that we're reading. So Jesus is our advocate, the one who comes alongside and he stands in our defense. He ever lives to make intercession for us continually uh, for those who have been saved. This connects well with Ray's message about the conflict that we have with sin or the denial thereof to, for one who say they don't sin and they're really being a liar. Everyone is going to sin. This is telling us how sin is resolved. This is the advocate who helps us. So, Jesus is the ultimate remedy for our sin at salvation, and Scripture tells us that He continues to make intercession on our behalf with the Father. Look at Hebrews 7.25. Hebrews This is what the writer of Hebrew says. It says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is Christ seated at the right hand of Father making intercession on behalf of the believers. And many teachers of the Bible, including myself, will refer to the courtroom scene Right, to maybe make an analogy for you where an attorney is building a defense case for their client and speaking on their behalf. And there are some appropriate applications to make here, of course, and that's why I continue to use that. But understand that Jesus is so much more than just a defense attorney that we might have in, in a human courtroom. See, when he makes his defense, Jesus um, does not maintain our innocence, but he acknowledges our guilt. Right? He doesn't try to spin the truth a little bit like a defense attorney probably would today and get paid very well to do it or try to dismiss our wrongdoing altogether, 
but rather Jesus acknowledges that we are sinners and we must agree with that and acknowledge that we too are sinners. And I've never seen in a courtroom scene the judge declare a defendant innocent, though knowing he is guilty, and then taking the advocate for them, their lawyer, into into incarceration and then executing that lawyer on their behalf. But that's what God has done for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, what does it say? For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is Christ, our advocate. We were not the righteousness of God. In our sin, there's no way our righteousness could even appear before God without us just being killed altogether. We cannot stand under God's wrath in our own righteousness. To him, it is like filthy rags is what the scripture tells us. But we needed the one who was righteous. John says that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus Christ, the righteous. It's like John is making a declaration of fact there. Jesus was the only one worthy of both being our advocate and paying our penalty that could satisfy his heavenly father because he was absolutely righteous, because he was God. And then our sins were transferred to him. It's that imputed sin to Christ so that his righteousness might be imputed to us by a genuine confession and repentance of sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God as is stated there in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And it is the only way that we can have a right standing before a holy God. Now, I've gotten a little bit ahead of myself in my notes here. And I did buy a new computer, and one of the features I didn't get is the ability to use my finger to scroll through it. So I'm having to use this funky little mouse here. (laughs) All right. So let's look at verse 2. It says that he is the propitiation for our sins. So he's our advocate. We've talked about that, and he's also the the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's uh, do a little more of a Greek lesson here with this word propitiation. It's the Greek word hilasmos, and it means a sin offering. A propitiation of an angry God, it's an atoning sacrifice. Um, Hilasmos also means properly propitiation, an offering to appease or satisfy an angry or offended party. God is offended at our sin. Mankind has sinned against a holy God and he is perfectly holy and therefore any sin that we commit is an offense to our holy God. And we need an atoning sacrifice. And it is Christ's atoning blood that appeases God's wrath on all confessed sin. By the sacrifice of himself, Jesus Christ provided the ultimate propitiation. And John goes on to say that this is not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So he's a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ already, those who are called by John to be his little children, but it is also for the sins of the whole world. Christ has made a way that is available to all who will come to him by faith. He is the all-satisfying propitiation. No one could have propitiated our sinfulness like Jesus Christ. He is called the perfect Lamb of God. He is the only one worthy. And that his sacrifice was sufficient to take away the sins of the whole world was good enough for all, yet we also understand that the whole world 
is not saved and not in fellowship with God. See, atonement does not equal forgiveness. Those two should not be confused. There's atoning, there's the atonement, and then there's forgiveness. And one commentator source puts it this way, and I understand this is not scripture. This is commentary, but I think it, it draws us a finer point on this. It says, this announces to the world that God has taken care of the sin problem by the propitiation of Jesus Christ. Sin need not be a barrier between God and man if man will receive the propitiation God has provided in Jesus. The scripture tells us that Christ's power is infinite, that it is all sufficient, it's all satisfying to God because it was God himself come down to man in the flesh. In, first, in Colossians, I'm sorry, chapter one, verses 16 through 17, where we studied the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ this is what it says there, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We see there that Christ being God, that he is supreme, that he is sufficient to save, and that Christ's death satisfies fully and eternally the demands of God's wrath for those who will believe. Now, the whole world that we see here in John indicates that the offer of salvation is directed to the whole world, but the fact is that not all will come to be saved. And that's the truth of Scripture as well. And Jesus himself, when he's sharing in the Lord's Supper with his disciples, he would say this as his covenantal blood, when in Mark 14, 24, he says, and he said to them, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. And the many that he states there recognizes that not all will come to him in faith. Though it's offered universally, though it says to the whole world, there in essence salvation is universal, but it is conditional, it is for all who believe. Romans 10, 11 through 13 says, For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So there it's made very clear to us. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, all who believe in him will be saved. It's a sincere, genuine confession. And then we also know that regardless of how broad Christ's atoning sacrifice was to the world, that there is only that one limitation with respect to its effectiveness in that it is only to those who believe. In John chapter 3, verse 18, this is the one that follows the most famous passage, John chapter 3, verse 16, where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might believe through him. And then in verse 18, it says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but... Whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And when I consider the tragedy of a person in this world dying without knowing Jesus as the Lord and Savior, that should motivate me, that should motivate you to want to broadcast this, this gospel message to him ever we're here. You know, I've, I've seen where, where pastors will sit here and they'll snap their fingers and they'll say, someone's born, someone dies, someone's born, someone dies. It's that continual progression and thinking that many of those who die are stepping into eternity without faith 
in the Lord Jesus Christ as the propitiation for their sin. This is why Paul would say, I deliver to you as of first importance that which I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. We need to get the message out there as of first importance. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. This is verse three of chapter two, verse one. Or chapter two, this is verse three of chapter two. And this is what I would call the test. The test of each and every one of us when the scripture confronts us, challenges us, we must do an evaluation. And so Paul, or John is, is calling this of us. He says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Who says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So John presents a test of sorts for us here. How do we know that we are saved? How, how do we come to know him? And what is John saying here? Well, the Greek word for know is gnosko. And it can mean just to learn to know something, to come to know something, to get knowledge of something. Uh, it can be to a perceived type of knowledge, um, to know, understand, it could have a knowledge of. But it is also the meaning of an intimate relationship between man and woman. The Hebrew parallel of this is found where it says that Adam knew his wife Eve. He knew her in an intimate sense, and this is the meaning that John is projecting to us here when he says, those who know God. We know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. There is an expression of an intimate kind of knowing that goes beyond just a head knowledge of God. We have many that will give an assent to God and say, yeah, I know God, but then, you know, it comes down to, do you call him Lord of your life? Have you put your faith in his one and only son, Jesus Christ? Because to know God in a saving way means that you have an intimate knowing of him as your father. It's to go beyond the head knowledge and to be perceived in the heart. It's a deeper spiritual relationship, and that is what John is describing here to us. It is one who is saved. It is one thing for us to know God, but it is quite another thing for him to know us. I had a Christian friend that used to challenge me with that, you know, I'd be speaking of someone, he's like, yeah, well, they know the Lord. He's like, ah, yeah, but does the Lord know them? It's a mutual kind of knowing that he calls us his child or even to be referred to as the bride of Christ is what it means to know God. There is a qualifier to knowing him, though. If you truly know him, how is it that we know that we are saved? Do we keep practicing his commandments? Does your sin grieve you? Are you burdened by it until you confess it to God? And there are many that go around claiming to be followers of Jesus Christ, but then by their life, they don't demonstrate any practice of keeping God's commandments. You know, I've seen products of what I will call easy believism, where one walks away from what I'd call a salvation experience and never give thought to obedience to God. And I even took part in these evangelism, evangelism efforts, I would call them, because they were kind of just man-made efforts when I look back on the product of it where we would take 
you know, hundreds of youth to these gatherings, and we'd have these famous Christian bands, even Christian bands whose members are walking away from the faith and not even professing faith in God, and them getting them worked up into an emotional lather, you know, as if they, they've got, they're having some experience, and then they have a gifted speaker come in and talk to them, but maybe never talk about sin or the wrath of God, just speak of all God's love for them, and then have an altar call, and they would come forward, and hundreds of, of kids there, and they would go to the back, and they would sign their name on this card, and they would think they were good. And then the next day, you know, walk out the door and just go on living their life as if there hadn't been any heart change whatsoever. And it grieves me to think of this. Now, I, I admit that there were probably those who professed a genuine faith. Sadly, it was probably a very small percentage of maybe the hundreds and thousands that actually walked forward. And John prescribes a test for us here. The, the scriptures prescribe a test for us. Do we follow his commandments? If you really know him, you will keep his word, you will keep his commandments. But if we never give thought to obedience to God, we are like these that Paul would write about in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through, th one through 3. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And Paul lists out these rhetorical questions. Like, you know the response to this, right? Like, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And I hope as, as Christians that we would just give an emphatic, no, we should not do that. Never should we presume upon God's grace. Just to take advantage of it and say, okay, I've been given his grace, I've had this emotional experience, and now I'm just going to continue living my life as if his grace meant nothing to me. His grace should do something to us. It should change us. To go on with our lifestyle of sinning against God after claiming to have faith in him and what he did for us is to presume upon his grace. We are saved by his grace, but not that we should go on living like we have never been changed. As Paul would describe it, we have died to sin. It is what is symbolized in baptism. That there is a noted change in our life now. Our heart by the Holy Spirit has been regenerated, has been renewed. We have been washed. We have been become a new person by our rebirth. And therefore, there should be a noted change. You know, the, the drives that we once had are different. The company that we keep around us should be different. Our motivations, our desires should be different. John writes in verse 4, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. And this, John gets really serious on us with this statement here because to be in this camp of those who have named the name of Christ with their lips, like just given a lip service, but then give no evidence outwardly of a changed heart by a changed lifestyle, then it begs the question if one has truly been saved. We should want to follow his commands, and when we disobey, we should want to confess and strive towards holiness. I alluded to it earlier in chapter 14 of John's gospel. Jesus has told us that he would not leave us alone, that he would give us another helper, his Holy Spirit, who would be with us but would also be in us. And the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity who comes to indwell us, gives us the desire, gives us the ability to overcome temptation, to seek to live our lives in obedience to God. 
1 Peter 1.15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. And if one professes Christ and then lives life as one who is not saved, then John says the truth is not in them. There is no obedience seen in their life. Jesus says that he is the way, that he is the truth, and that he is the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. And if the truth is not in you, and Jesus says that he is in the truth, then that means that Christ is not in you, that you are not saved. And I know that seems really harsh, but this needs to be an eye-opening thing to all of us, and it was to me in studying this. It causes us to evaluate and really check our hearts here. And remember that John was refuting this false doctrine of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism. I get my tongue tied up a little there. Because there were those that were claiming to know Jesus, and then because of their, this Gnosticism philosophy that believed in an altogether different Jesus, they thought that they could just go on living their lifestyle, which was wrought with sin, and still have their eternity with Jesus too. And John is saying, no, absolutely not. You can't go on living this pattern of sin in your life that you've always walked in and think that your heart has been changed and now you've got an eternity of, in heaven awaiting you. Those who were Gnostics would go on sinning like the one who never claimed to know him. And Paul, writing to Titus, he would speak of these people in 1.16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Without the knowledge of our sin being wrong, we don't have anything to repent of, and so we are calling God a liar. I had a very heart-to-heart -heart with a family member of mine and who is living a lifestyle that is not in accordance with scriptures. I'll just put it that way. And... I guess I was being challenged with my, my belief and, and what I preach, you know, from the pulpit here. And I said, when I come to the scriptures and God's truth tells me something about myself, about the sin that I may be walking in, and I tell God that it's not a sin and choose to live in it anyway, what am I doing to the holy name of God? We must be honest with ourselves about this. And I hope that we can all look at this and say that we are per persevering, that we're living a life of obedience to God. Where Paul would say in Philippians 2, 12 through 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I also hope that anyone looking at this and saying, I don't see his truth in me, that I'm living a lie, but I don't want to anymore, that now would be the time to come to sincere confession and repentance, that you would say, I want to live my life for you. What must I do to be saved? But that was an honest question of the Philippian jailer. You remember what he asked Paul? So he brought them out and said, sir, what must I do to be saved? He says, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved, you and your household. And then the counter to the one who has essentially lied to himself and the truth is not found in them is found in verses five through six. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. 
By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The love of God is perfected in the one that with a sincere heart has put their faith in Christ and repented of their sin. The opposite of lying is one who keeps their word. As John said, but whoever keeps his word. But this goes beyond that, and I believe it is referring to God's word, the scriptures, because he's been talking about keeping God's commandments. Where are God's commandments found? God's commandments are found in his word. The obedience to God that is evidence of a saving type of faith. The one who has made a commitment and followed through with it by faith that has seen obedience to God and his word. And John is not speaking of a finished perfection, but a salvation accomplishment. Christ saves us. He saves us to the uttermost once and for all, but then there is that perfecting work that is a continual process in the life of a believer. It's what we call progressive sanctification. You know, just as I read earlier, let each one you know, work out his own salvation with much fear and trembling, for it is God who works in us. It's that coming in and revealing things in our heart, confessing to God, it's just that continual growth that we should be seeing in our Christian life. The Greek verb, tetelotai, means accomplished, and that's how this is true, is what accomplished means. This is translated initiate, right? But where it keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. It's initiated in salvation, and then God works it out in us continually in our lives as we are being sanctified. Do you hunger for his word? Do you desire fellowship with other believers? Are you continually going to God in prayer? Are you loving God and seeking to put him first in your life? And We could list a lot of other questions here. These are just four of them that I wrote out for myself. In our model for this, and just like everything else in our Christian walk, is Jesus. He was the word become flesh that came down from heaven and lived a perfect life. In Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, the writer there says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The end part of this that John writes says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. What did the writer of Hebrews say? He's the founder and he's the perfecter of our faith. So we're not going to look to Ray to be that for us and try to follow him. We should set a good example as other believers, but ultimately we look to the one who's the founder or as some translations say, the author and the perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ, the righteous the one who puts their trust in Christ is like the branches that I talked about last week with the kids. You know, there's where John will use that word abide again. It's found in his gospel in chapter 15, verses four through five, where he says, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That word abiding has with it the idea of remaining, remaining in him. It's not a relaxed kind of laziness. It's like, okay, I'm just going to sit back. 
let God do all the work. Well, the Holy Spirit within us will, will not allow us to do that. We remain in Him, but there is now an energy, in a sense, that is obtained because we are tapped into the source of our spiritual life, our spiritual sustenance, and it is Jesus Christ. Can we achieve righteous perfection in everything we do? No, only Jesus could do that. We are not God, but because he came and set an example for us, we are going to do our best. We are going to persevere to follow him as our perfect role model. And because we have his life in us to help us in our weaknesses, knowing we have our parakletos, the one who comes alongside and understands and calls out for us, the one Jesus Christ, our advocate, our great high priest, he established the perfect pattern that we are to follow. And if anyone claims to know and abide in him, then it will work itself out in obedience to his commandments, to his word. There will be a passionate love for truth and love for the Lord of truth. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. God, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, who is our advocate, who is the propitiation for our sin, and not just ours only, to the whole world. You know, there's been a lot of things that I've had to really check myself on here, Lord, and I thank you for your Holy Spirit moving in my heart, and I pray that right now you're, you're moving in the hearts of those here to help us evaluate ourselves against these truths that we find in your word. Are we truly following your, your commandments? Are we seeking to know more about you? Are we desiring and hungering for your word? Are we spending time in prayer? Are we desiring fellowship with others? And God, for many of us, we may be challenged by different things here. Maybe we're clinging to a sin that we just want to hold on to, but we know it's wrong, Father, and we know that this habitual sin just needs to be confessed before you and that we have all the resources that we need in a relationship with Jesus Christ to overcome that. God, I just pray that um, anyone here that does not know you, has not professed sincere faith, has not seen this worked out in their lives in genuine obedience to your word, God, that right now you would move in a saving way on their heart to draw them unto you, God to help them to be cognizant and to have an awareness of their sin before you, that they know that, they're, that your wrath is coming for them, Lord, but that they know that they have one who is able to save them to the uttermost, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And Father, to help them to confess that sin to you, Lord, and to turn from that sin in faith towards you and all that you have done through Jesus Christ and to recognize that they have his life now in them and that they do have the ability to overcome and to persevere. Help us to be faithful to come alongside others and to share this with them, Lord, to mold and shape and pattern our own lives after you, our perfect example. May you be glorified in everything that we do, Lord, in our comings and our goings. When we leave from here, may we see the importance and of those that are lost around us and just have that motivation to know that there is an eternity waiting for those who profess a faith in you, eternity with you, but Lord, there is also an eternity apart from you in hell. And God, that we should not want that anyone should, should perish there, but we want that all would come to know. And Lord, just help that to be our motivating uh, desire in our life. We thank you and we praise you. We ask all this in Jesus Christ's name, amen.